The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If you've watched an action movie featuring a tall actress in the last 20 years, then you have seen Kimberly Shannon Murphy. One of Hollywood's top stunt women, Kimberly is the go-to stunt double for Cameron Diaz, Uma Thurman, Sandra Bullock, Angelina Jolie, Blake Lively, Sharon Stone, and more. Her day job sounds terrifying, jumping off buildings, crashing cars, but it pales in comparison to Kimberly's real-life childhood. Starting when she was just two years old, Kimberly experienced severe childhood sexual abuse by a family member. Kimberly's extraordinary and heartbreaking new memoir, Glimmer, a story of survival, hope, and healing, reveals that the abuse went back generations. Her mother, aunt, and numerous other women in her family were also preyed upon. In this emotional and eye-opening episode of Navigating Narcissism, Kimberly bravely shares the devastation of suffering silently and the bold moves she's making to break the cycle for her daughter. From Red Table Talk Podcasts and iHeartMedia, I'm Dr. Romani, and this is Navigating Narcissism. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. Kimberly, I had the opportunity to read your book, and it's so powerful. Your experience of intergenerational child sexual abuse and trauma, is it happens so much more than people no. And 
it's not talked about enough. It's one of those conversations that still remains in the shadows, which is another reason your book is so powerful and these conversations are so important. On navigating narcissism, we're really focused on the survivor. And to that end, because it's your experience, I want you to begin sharing it with us wherever you want to begin it. Okay. Well, the abuse started probably around two or three with my grandfather, my mother's father, and ended when he died when I was 11. The so, entire time. The entire time. Saw him probably four times a week. So it was a constant mm -hmm. thing. My grandmother was complicit and was very aware of what was going on and didn't do anything about it. My mother was also a victim mm -hmm. and some of her siblings and... I'm sure all of her siblings, mm -hmm. that's what I came into the world knowing. I didn't mm -hmm. know any different. I just thought that that's how things were done. Yeah. So as you experienced it, you, nine continuous years mm -hmm. of sexual abuse perpetrated by your grandfather, did anyone in your family speak out about what he was doing? My aunt tried in the 50s, my mother's sister, which mm -hmm. is who I dedicate the book to because mm -hmm. she was... She's probably the reason I'm sitting here right now. She gave me so much strength to mm -hmm. do this. She was a phenomenal writer and mm -hmm. wanted to write a book herself so badly. She died of Alzheimer's, but mm -hmm. she told on him when she was nine years old. Oh. And it was brought to the family's attention, and he denied it, and that was it, and everything went on. What happened to her within the family? The abuse stopped once she told on him with her, but <clears> continued <throat> on with others continued on with others. It was denied. How was your grandfather regarded by your family? Amazing. So you thought he was amazing? Yes. The best person on the planet. Everybody loved him. He was successful in the eyes of he made money. He supported his family. During that time of that generation, it was very much respect your elders. What they say goes. You don't ask questions. Mm -hmm, this is how mm -hmm. things are done. And so I didn't. Of course not. I mean, you couldn't. Yes. It's not even that you didn't. I think it's you couldn't. Yes. This person was, he was so valued. Your grandmother was complicit. She knew it. Others knew it. Yes. Because they were abused. And for a variety of reasons had to remain completely unseeing or unacknowledging of it. And having to know that another generation of children were being perpetrated against. So by cultivating that persona... It's part of the larger concept of grooming, right? Yes. Because then it gives him sort of free access to everybody because he's implicitly trusted by everybody. Completely. And it completely silences all of the people who are perpetrated against. And since he was choosing minors, they're already going to be silenced by virtue of being minors. Exactly. So from the ages of 2 to 11, the entire period you were abused until he died, did you ever tell anyone about what was happening? I didn't feel like there was any safe adults around me mm -hmm. and even your aunt because i didn't know at the time I see. about her oh, so didn't i didn't know. find out until later okay. that she was abused mm -hmm. that she had come mm -hmm. forward i didn't know any of this okay. information um so i was terrified for my life yeah he made it very clear that if i ever said anything that he would kill me so that's it. You were effectively imprisoned in yes. silence. When you were taken in for pediatric examinations, was it ever noticed there? Because there are sometimes telltale signs mm -hmm. of sexual abuse in children. He gave me herpes when I was eight. And 
that was sort of swept under the rug as well. I was taken to the doctor, but it was not accepted that that's what it was. And so I was never given medicine for it. So the doctor knew it. The yes. doctor says something. And the unwillingness to acknowledge it meant that you also went untreated yes. for an illness. Yeah. Kimberly, how was school going for you? I didn't do well in school. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel important to me. I felt like I had this thing that was yep. happening in my mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And going to school and learning math was, to me, I was like, okay, but I have this thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I knew in my heart wasn't right because it didn't mm -hmm. feel right. Mm -hmm. Even though everyone around me wasn't doing anything about it, I've come to become good friends with Dr. Matei mm -hmm. through all of this. Oh, and, yeah. mm -hmm. and he said something to me which really resonated with me. He said, your primary trauma was not the abuse. Your primary trauma was you never had adult support. Yeah. Because if you did, the trauma would have never happened yes. in the first place. Yes. Or if it did happen even once, it would have been validated. I, exactly. I couldn't agree with that more. Because for a child to not have the sense that any attachment needs could be met, and there's no safety, that's the trauma. So yes. as, he, as he put it, the lack of protection. Yes. Dr. Gabor Mate is a physician with expertise in trauma, childhood development, addiction, and stress. So then your grandfather dies. Mm -hmm. How did you feel at that point? Very good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. Um, thank you for saying that. Can you say more? I think it's really important for people to hear that. Yeah. I got to tell you, I felt very good too when yeah. I heard that happening in yeah. your book. I felt like I could finally figure out who I was. Mm -hmm. He was my identity. Mm -hmm. Didn't have one without him. At least that's how it felt for me. Mm. So when he died, I felt this just overwhelming sense of who am I? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I can finally figure out why I'm mm -hmm. here. I knew it couldn't have been that. I know a lot of survivors and a lot of people that go through this kind of trauma when they're young, it stifles them in a lot of ways. And it did do that for me. But I also, it gave me this odd strength, which I've carried with me through my life. And so when he died, it was such a relief to me. And I remember, you know, being at his funeral and not crying and not feeling sad and feeling just relief. It's so important for people to hear that because that kind of reaction at the time of someone's passing, we're told that's terrible if you feel that way. But I'm a reader of the book and I felt relieved. I felt like I left my body during his funeral. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. And I felt like I didn't want to be around people who were praising him, which is mm -hmm. what they were all mm -hmm. doing. They were all getting up there and telling amazing yeah. stories about how incredible he was. And I never knew that man. My mom tells these stories about these amazing things that he did as a father. I didn't know that man. I hated him. I mm -hmm. never had love mm -hmm. for him. There was never that confusion for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think some of his children have that confusion. Yeah. But yeah. I always despised him. It's so complicated because many other people who've gone through this kind of intrafamilial abuse don't know what emotion to have. Am I supposed to hate this person? Am I supposed to love this person? His other victims within the family system, like your mother, like your aunt, and I'm sure many others, mm -hmm. had to tell themselves a different story. In order to stay in the family system, if somebody spoke out, they were going to be firmly silenced and ostracized. Most people can't tolerate that. Yes, which has happened to me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> how much of that was ostracism and how much of that also was free will and choice? Because ostracism is something that happens to us. But there's also a point for survivors where you say, you know, 
you don't need to kick me out. I'm out. Don't think this is some grand punishment for me. I right. have made the choice to step away. You know, I do want to unpack that with you because I think yeah. that's a really important piece to tell. We speak of a fictitious character in the book as my sister. I actually mm-hmm. have three sisters. Oh, okay. My one sister, as soon as she found out I got a book deal, completely ghosted me. Haven't talked to her in three and a half years. And my youngest sister did the same thing. My middle sister was supportive, but I think she felt like she sort of had to choose a side. Mm. And there were things happening within our family system that as I got older and as I started healing, I realized were extremely toxic and that we were all moving in this toxic way. We always called it, oh, we're just enmeshed is what we would say. But there were never words then mm-hmm. like there are now. We're just an enmeshed family. We're just enmeshed. Well, no, we just didn't have boundaries. Mm-hmm. I don't think I learned what a boundary was until I was 30. Right. A family system that is enmeshed is a family system with very poor boundaries. And unhealthy emotional sharing and expectations cut through the family. There may also be lots of triangulation, gossip, and breaking of confidences. Parents may share inappropriate information with children, and when the children become adults, the parents may over-rely on their children. There is a real pressure to keep everything in-house, meaning people are discouraged from seeking help outside of the family. Enmeshment doesn't mean that the family is deeply connected or committed. It really does mean that the boundaries are so blurred that the individual identities, safety, and needs of the people in the family get lost. So once I started really doing the work, I realized that having certain people in my life was not healthy for me, no matter how much I love them, and that how they chose to deal with their trauma was not how I was choosing to deal with my trauma. And I could not have a relationship with them, one of them being my father and one of them being my sister. That's a big moment. Yes. It's almost like you're talking about a family mass so enmeshed that it was just like this toxic clump. And that intergenerational cycle of protecting the system but not the individuals within it seemed to persist. Mm -hmm. There's no safety, but it's almost like strength in numbers. Okay, we're a family. We're all together. And I guess that was the real test. You get the book deal. You're going to speak your truth. And that's when they said, no, this family system has no room for truth. Correct. You said your sisters chose to deal with their trauma differently. How did they deal with their trauma? They didn't. They didn't. Okay, so your sisters were abused too. They chose not to deal with it. Correct. You said you knew what was happening wasn't right. Mm -hmm. But when did you recognize or realize that this was abuse? When he died... I think I felt safer. My parents were in a very safe space for me ever. My mom, because of her abuse, Mm -hmm. just was there but not there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. my dad, he was in Vietnam very young Mm -hmm. and didn't come from the most functional family. Mm -hmm. And so his idea of fatherhood is very different than my idea of fatherhood. Mm -hmm. But I started having flashbacks Mm -hmm that were debilitating for me. Like I would see him or I would uncontrollably shake and not understand why. And then things would flash in my head and then I'd hide in my closet. And when that started happening, I knew that something was really wrong. Mm -hmm. My mom had this like encyclopedia of diseases, which I looked through every day and 
diagnosed myself with every sort of everything, which now I can see was mm -hmm. I just needed to find something concrete that was wrong with me mm -hmm. because there was so much wrong that nobody was acknowledging. Mm -hmm. I cried every day. I remember thinking, okay, this can't be normal. I'm a child. I, mm -hmm. I'm crying mm -hmm. every day. Why am I crying every day? There's nothing that I can really hang on to, mm -hmm. even though there was abuse going on in my own home as far as narcissistic abuse mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. I've come to know now, yeah. but then I did not. Because mm -hmm. for me, it, there was such this massive abuse that I had endured that what was going on in my house was nothing. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. Yes. It was yes. like, oh, yeah. this is just dad. Dad. Well, <laughs> I mean, and listen, even when there's not that other simultaneous sexual abuse happening in a family, People still do think that this is just dad, but their body holds that this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's risky for me to be myself. It's dangerous to express needs. Oh, yes. That all gets internalized, but that's the only reality you know. So I think thinking it's the it's just dad, I think that's part and parcel of what childhood narcissistic abuse survivors would all say. Was there a point at which you did share with someone in the family you had been abused or learn more about these cycles of sexual abuse within your family? I told my mother mm -hmm. and she immediately left the room in a panic and came back and said, we're going to go see my therapist tomorrow. You're not going to school. And I was like, you have a therapist? She said, yes, yeah, someone hurt me too. And then she just went to bed. Then the next day I was in the office with her, with her therapist. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel safe there either because I of course was a total stranger no. and yeah. she was really pushy and I didn't even know what I was experiencing. Four years since your grandfather's died, you tell your mother, she has you go talk to a therapist, but that was a little bit abrupt. You really needed your mom to not split away. It sounds like you understand enough about trauma to understand why your mom just split yes. away and what her trauma response mm -hmm. was. But her motherhood didn't supersede that response. It never had. She no. hadn't ever kept you safe. She knew this was coming, and she didn't do anything about it. So that's your mom. Let's talk about your narcissistic father. I want to understand that a little bit. So do I. Okay. Well, that, you know what? You come to the right yeah, place. I'm sure that you can I can help, help you with that. With. Yes. Yes. So tell me a little bit about dad. So he didn't believe me when mm. my memory surfaced. So that's just the ultimate invalidation. Yes. I don't know that you move forward from that. No. I think for my father, him having to admit that this happened on his watch mm -hmm. was way too overwhelming for him. Mm -hmm. And so it was easier for him to just say, absolutely not. This couldn't have happened. And the abuse happened when the adults were all present. Like mm -hmm. this was Christmas. This was parties. This was, you know, that's why I always say like, know where your children are all the time. Absolutely. Because it was happening under their feet. Literally. And right. not belittling anybody's abuse, but it was very severe abuse. So for a long time, it was really confusing to me how, you know, my mom never saw or my dad or no one ever saw. That was something that I really struggled with because I just know now as a mom, my daughter doesn't leave my sight for 30 seconds without me knowing where she is. And then once I started writing and really excavating and really pretty much having to go no contact with my family, I remember that my mom actually did walk in on a few occasions. And I think um, that he had groomed her so much and she was so afraid of him that the minute he 
told her to get out, she did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't matter. Yes, and you weren't protected. I'm so sorry. Thank you for sharing that. Sorry. <laughs> Don't you ever say sorry for crying, please. You know, you're you're conditioned to apologize when you I know you're conditioned to apologize. Yes. <laughs> yes. I almost wish we had kind of like a little bit of a buzzer in here yeah, when people like, say no, sorry. But, yeah. We don't we don't say I'm sorry on navigating narcissism. Or navigating narcissism yeah. means never having to say you're sorry. But just like you said, you can't rank trauma higher or lower. Yours was very severe. I read the book. It's very severe. That's an objective clinical opinion that it was very severe. Trauma affects everyone differently. And the way your mother and father responded to it, your mother witnessed it. And then you have someone like your father who, it's interesting how you framed that to me, Kimberly, is that he didn't want it to have been happened on his watch. How did he feel about your grandfather while your grandfather was alive? Did He, he loved him. He loved him. My dad came from a very poor family mm-hmm. and my mother's family had money. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very attractive to Mm -hmm. him Mm -hmm. and he felt like they could do no wrong right and even stories i heard later on in life that would make me question as an adult you know my dad told me a story once oh i had to pick your grandfather up and talk about having inappropriate conversations with your child at a strip club in the middle of the day and i'm you know now in the space i'm at now Okay, well, no one found that odd on the middle of a work day that he's at a strip Strip club club. and Mm -hmm. he's in his 60s. I did a lot of digging because Mm -hmm. I needed to understand how this survived Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how he was able to get away with it for so long. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. really important to me for a long time to try to just wrap my head around how I could have been so hurt around so many adults that were supposed to protect me. Mm -hmm. What did your your process of exploring this reveal that everybody sucked (laughs) okay you know what though we could use all kinds of fancy words like they were all enablers and you know intergenerational this and this is how they manage betrayal and they couldn't process it but it really does come down to everybody sucks all right i want to go back again to your mom because your mom went through this Mm -hmm. your mom had witnessed it You find out at the age of eight at a doctor's office you have a sexually transmitted infection. There's only one place that could have come from, from another adult. And at 15, she runs out of the room Mm -hmm. when you tell her. And then she gives you a therapist you don't know anything about, no other place to process it. At the age of 15, how did you start working through that? How did your relationship with your mother evolve? It didn't. It didn't. Mm Mm-hmm. I could see that. It's hard because she was abused up until the day before her wedding. So it was her entire life. Your mother was abused the day before yeah. her wedding. And then after her wedding, it stopped. Yeah. I think. I mean, you who knows? Know. You have a father who was in complete denial that his daughter was harmed. If he was sitting here, he'll say, I don't know what you're talking about. I believed you. He harmed you twice. He harmed you on the front end when he says that didn't happen. And yes. then he harms you again when he says, I did say that happened. I never not believed you is what he'll say to me until, (laughs) and I know the day when my other sister came forward with her memories Mm -hmm. when we were older in our 20s is when I was actually validated by my father. Why do you think he, what what was the, what did he turn on? I was the drama queen in the family. That's how they characterized. Yes. So I think for him, having someone else acknowledge it, my sister 
he has a different relationship with. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I was actually believed by him. So you're labeled the drama queen of the family. Mm -hmm. You're not believed. Your sister comes around. It still doesn't feel like you were believed. It feels like your sister was believed mm -hmm. and you kind of just got sort of swept in. What was that feeling like that he would believe her and not you? My dad and I had a very tumultuous relationship because I called him out on his shit. I haven't spoken to him in eight months, and mm. that was my decision. Okay. I couldn't keep having the same conversations with him on the phone, yeah. which were all about him mm -hmm, and all mm -hmm. about the only thing that he would ever say about my grandfather was, you know, if he was alive, I'd kill him, which is not comforting for me. It was just felt like a merry-go-round all the time. I couldn't be in the toxicity anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was very toxic mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. Narcissistic relationships, especially long-standing family relationships, can feel like merry-go-rounds, as Kimberly just described. You share how you feel, they come back with their same response, around you go, and nothing ever changes. If you find yourself in this merry-go-round pattern, I often advise folks to either get a timer for when they are going to talk with a narcissistic person or to make a promise to themselves that the first time the narcissistic person says the same invalidating thing, for example, his comment about her grandfather, that you find a way to end the conversation. Sadly, we often need to ride this carousel for a long time before we can finally decide to hop off. We will be right back with this conversation. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. So I sat down and I wrote him a seven-page letter about my feelings and how I never felt supported by him in so many ways and just my choice of career and so many things that he never supported me on until he saw me on television and then awesome. everything changed because he could show his friends that mm -hmm. his daughter was on television. And I also said, there's options. We can heal. We can change. We can mm -hmm. grow. We can work on this. Mm -hmm. And I never heard from him again. Wow. Everything with my father, every mean horrible thing he would say to me, which was many, always ended with, I'm just kidding. Ah, the ultimate gaslight. Yes. I'm just kidding. You know, it's a big gaslighty thing to do, mm -hmm. right? So you've had a real reaction to something because mm -hmm. it's cruel. Mm -hmm. Your reactions witnessed. Narcissistic person knows what's right and what's wrong. They're just always trying to keep people off balance. You register hurt. Then it's I'm just kidding, which makes you look crazy right. for having a reaction to something when they were just joking. And now it's back to Kimberly's dramatic. Yes. That whole I'm just kidding. It's just blood sport. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be how he had his interactions. So from age 15, your mother and you hit an impasse at that point. Your father's your father. So what happens then? How does your life move forward? 
I left. You, you, oh, you moved away. Okay. Yeah. At what age? 18. Eight, 18. I'm oh. from New York. I moved to California okay. to Marin, but I wasn't handling things in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. I was bulimic. I was cutting. I was doing all the things. Really just, as I say, like I was just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Like every day was just a survival mm-hmm. day for me. I never looked forward to things. I was never excited about things. I was just living. Mm-hmm. And that's complex trauma. It is just living. It's survival. Yeah. There's a word we have called anhedonia, which Mm -hmm. means you no longer get pleasure or joy from any of the activities that maybe have ever given you joy or would ordinarily give people joy. A beautiful day, dinner out with friends, a funny movie, whatever it means, nothing. It's just sort of this flat kind of gray sort of feeling around life. Anhedonia is something we do see in people going through post-traumatic stress, complex post-traumatic stress. It's a big part of that picture. Mm -hmm, For sure. I mean, and even still now, I feel like that I have that because my husband's come out and look at the stars. I'm like, I don't. Mm, So it's still there. It's yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely. And at this point, Kimberly, so now you're 18. Are you talking with anyone about what's happening? How are you getting through the days? At 25, I actually started writing a book Hmm. with all the women in my family, my mom, my aunt, my sisters at the time. And everybody was really, I wouldn't say it was a book of it was more of just us journaling and Hmm. sort of getting everything out. At that time, we felt that it was healthy, but looking back, I think it was actually really an unhealthy mm-hmm. way to process what had happened mm-hmm. because I think we needed to process it apart from each other mm-hmm. and not together. And I say this because I do speak to my mom. It's different, but my mom does try. She's in therapy. She does her best. And, you know, that's a very difficult thing for me because. There is a split side of knowing that she was a victim as well yes, of him. Yes. And so I do have that in my heart. That's very hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we soon became grouped together. And that was uncomfortable for me because I didn't feel like being grouped with my mom was fair mm-hmm. or being grouped with any other adult that was in my life mm-hmm. when I was a child was fair. Because even if the same thing happened to us, they still never protected me. Correct. I agree completely with that. Yes. Looking back, I know that it wasn't a healthy way to process Mm. my abuse. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting interesting story that's not in the book. I was abused on my first Holy Communion. And my mother knew this always from the time I was 15. It was one of my first memories. And about two years ago, she came to my house because we all wore the same communion dress, Mm. all of the siblings. She, oh, your sister asked for the communion dress for her if she ever has a daughter, which she now has. So I got them pressed, and I'm just sitting there in my head going, are we actually having this conversation? And I sent them to her, and now, you know, she has them, and she's so happy, and so if she ever has a daughter, she'll have her communion in this dress. And I tell that story because I just think it speaks volumes of where everybody's head is. Yes, yes, yes. wasn't talking to my younger sister at the time. I still am not. And I sent her an email and I just said, I just want to let you know, if you didn't know, that something really horrific happened to me in that dress. And I don't think you want it. Mm -hmm. Can you please Mm -hmm. mail it back to me because I'd like to burn it. Mm -hmm. And I never heard back from her. And about four months later, my mom came to my house after visiting her and she had my communion dress wrapped up in a Starbucks bag, like 
garbage. Mm-hmm. Not that it's not garbage, but mm-hmm. to me, it was a very significant, mm-hmm. painful part mm-hmm. of my life. And she just goes, oh, here's your thing. Here's your thing. And thankfully, I have an amazing husband, and he burned it with me. But if I never said anything, my niece would be wearing that dress on her communion. Mm -hmm. And that same sister, when she found out I was writing the book, told me I was going to ruin all of the children's lives by doing this. And what was so ironic about that to me Mm -hmm. was over the summer— we all just happened to be in New York. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to one of my sisters who I had talked to more than anyone. And I just said, look, my daughter really wants to see her cousins because she had grown up with them. And I said, can you please include her? This isn't fair to her. Mm-hmm. We can all go to the beach. I'm protecting her, mm-hmm. which I would never do right now in mm-hmm. the space yeah, I'm in course, now. But at that time, I just felt mm-hmm. like she's asking me to see her cousins. And she first said, absolutely. And then... They all got together and they never included my daughter. And so my daughter said to me, what did I do, mom? And that to me was such a moment for me to step back and say, I'm saving you from them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that is such a painful realization because you were doing the right things, right? She loves her cousins. You wanted her to have that contact. But now she's being brought into a toxic system where the child immediately goes to, is this my fault? What have I done wrong? And that you immediately detected as, no, I'm not putting her in a system where she's questioning herself. Your family in some ways is so not unique in the sense of Mm -hmm. you're going to harm all these children in the family by telling the truth. Right. Which, you know, could actually keep those children protected. Or understand, for me, it was never an option for my daughter not to know my story Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's going to explain to her so much about me and so much about why I parented the way that Mm -hmm. I did and why I'm not perfect and why I get triggered and why I'm impatient or why Mm -hmm. I overreact about certain things. And that, to me, is the biggest gift I can give her Mm because I can't take away what happened to me. Yeah, yeah. No, you can't. And I think that it is a gift for a child to know where they come from and it not all be a secret because it can actually be, even if no further sexual abuse happens to your various nieces, nephews, as they come up, but this story is kept from them. There is also a trauma and grief that comes from recognizing way down the line when you learn these things about your family that I believe, and this is rather metaphysical for a scientific gal as I, we do carry these traumatic inheritances within our bodies, even if we've never become acquainted with the players. It's in there. Yes. And we feel it. And in some ways, knowing it, it makes it all fit. Mm -hmm. We don't feel crazy. It's so fascinating because the willingness of your sister to remain faithful to a fictional characterization of a family was greater than wanting to have a relationship with her living, breathing sister. Yes. Unfortunately, what we're learning from you, and this is sort of the painful truth nobody wants to talk to, breaking intergenerational cycles does often mean breaking ties. Yeah. Because as long as people are still sort of buying into that false narrative, being near them is dangerous, Very. especially after what you've been through, yes. having had a history of complex trauma. Complex trauma treatment is also protecting yourself from dangerous situations. That's what you do forever. That's what you're doing. Yeah. 
And all the pushback, people say, well, I don't know, family estrangement. Nah. If it's yeah. going to keep someone safe, like you can, you, you want to say estrangement's a dirty word for me, it actually happens not to be. Yeah. And it's been interesting for me. I have connected with so many amazing doctors through sure. all of this, yeah. mm -hmm. you included, to get validation. It's sad that it's taken this long. You know, people that study this and mm -hmm. this is what you do for a living mm -hmm. and to get validation that I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. It's sad that it couldn't come from my family, mm -hmm. but I'm really happy about the way that it's mm -hmm. all happening. I'm I'm so glad you're getting that, but you know, say I'm sad it didn't come from my family. It almost couldn't come from your family. It goes back to that they couldn't keep you safe and they still can't keep people safe. That doesn't just change overnight. The decks almost have to be cleared with the family you've created with your husband. You have a daughter. The inheritance kind of gets a little cleaned up with her. Yes. And she gets to go and, and fall in love one day and have her own family. And that will feel different. Yeah. That's how these cycles end. And I do tire of people saying, we'll be sad if we end these cycles. I, I don't know. I, I think if the family earns the right to remain in that I think very divine seed of being family, that's an earned right. Mm -hmm. It's not just a birthright. Right. Being family is to be safe. We had a guest named Dr. Jennifer Fry who calls it the duties of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And the foremost duty of a relationship is safety. Yeah. It is to create safety. It's to protect the vulnerabilities of another. It's to keep children safe. If people can't do those duties, I don't give a shit if they're your family. Yeah. I have to tell you, Kimberly, in the years I've been doing all of this, is that for some people, it was literally the only path forward. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot of just dialogue around, you know, no contact and things yeah. that I didn't know mm -hmm. existed, but I was living. <laughs> you were, yes, it has a name. No contact. I mean, it's like, so obvious, no contact, <laughs> but people like that, you can actually do, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And no contact could literally describe two people just don't have contact. It's very intentional, Kimberly. No contact in a family system is rare. People yes. will say, there's at least one person in that system I want to be in touch with, which means I have to get the whole family blob coming along. Mm -hmm. It's not that common. And so when people do finally pull it off, it works. I'll tell you what's very interesting, sort of a sideline here. I was looking at a group of people's data a few years ago. The data was, it was collecting from people all, all over the world. And they were asking them, what are the things that have worked best for you to help you with your narcissistic abuse? Mm -hmm. At the time I had looked at that data, the number one thing was actually no contact. It's not a strategy accessible to everyone, especially, for example, if you're co-parenting with yes. someone and you have custody of a minor child, mm -hmm. you have to stay in touch with that parent. But for people who have it as an option, you're getting away from a toxin. There's yes. no, but it has a name and it's a thing and it's powerful and you did it and you're saying you noticed the difference. Oh, yeah, 100%. And my husband had a very normal life. Don't mm -hmm. ask me how we wound up together. I'm mm -hmm. not really sure. But he'll say, if you feel like you want to call your dad, I said, I don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't. Mm -hmm. I feel grief around it. Grief, yes. Mm -hmm. Which was surprising to me that I felt as much grief as I did. Because when I finished the book and all of these amazing things happening with it and how proud I am of just the outcome of it and how it's written and how many people I know it's going to help, you want to call your family. Mm -hmm. that's who you want to call mm -hmm. and tell them, look at this thing I did. But I couldn't mm -hmm. do that because they wouldn't have been proud of me. And it would have been 
the same conversation we've been having my entire life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I will say that is, I think, really difficult when you do have a narcissistic parent, especially one that's not supportive of you, because my father was never mm -hmm. anything that I did. Mm -hmm. Everything was the wrong thing. I would dance with Alvin Ailey for years. Wow. And it's really interesting because I was sending my book out to somebody yesterday. And as I was mailing it and putting it together, I heard my dad's voice in my head back when I was in my 20s and I had to live with him for a very short period of time. And I was mailing my headshot and resume out to everybody. And and I remember my dad walking in and looking at me and going, it's a waste of time. As I was mailing out my book, I just, you know, had this moment where I just broke down and I just thought, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, not only were you wrong, mm -hmm. so wrong about mm -hmm. my career besides this, but now I wrote a book. You know what's been so interesting is that narcissistic parents are dream killers, right? And you you have to have- Is that really a thing? A hundred percent a thing, yes. Because what it means then, Kimberly, is you are exerting an identity and a process outside of that narcissistic parent. To them, they sort of subjugate the identity of everyone around them. Children are an extension of them. Mm. And so you sort of exist in their service, mm -hmm. right? So if you have a need outside of them, they resent that. But it's the ultimate in arrogance if you think you're going to go do your own thing. But it also brings up their insecurity. At the core of the narcissistic person is deep, deep, yes. deep insecurity. So my guess is he probably had much more grandiose visions for himself, none of which happened. Correct. But even the sense of it's the I'm going to make you feel as small as I feel. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a waste of time when they see the pictures going out. That dream killing element, unless the dream is fully aligned with what the parent wants, because sometimes you'll hear like the stage parents who's like, you have to go to all the auditions, but then they'll criticize the child mercilessly as they go through the process. The, right. No one wins at this. So what you're describing there is on point, but so too is the grief. And I think People are struggling. I want to go no contact. I'm going to be relieved. I am relieved. But the wave of grief can be quite astonishing mm -hmm. because not only does it is it a painful reminder that they didn't protect you. Every child craves that attachment and connection to a loving parental figure or yes. figures and recognizing that's never going to happen. Never. And it's not about the father, the man. You've long since given up on that. Mm -hmm. But it's the symbol. It's the mm -hmm. thing. It's the safety. It's the primal need. It's the grief that that can't happen. It's yeah, a big grief. Completely. Yeah. And it's interesting because I went no contact with my dad a few years back for a short period of time. When I did it the first time, my sister called me and said, I didn't even say hello, I don't think. And she said, I well, I know you're not talking to dad and I hope you're okay with the fact that he's sick and he's probably going to die. And are you happy with like the last conversation you had with him? And I just thought, God, this family's so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it is the manipulativeness to keep a person on the hook. The person's dying. Is this what you want your last conversation to be? And you're thinking to yourself, I had that last conversation a long time ago. Like 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we'll be out to dinner years ago and he has all of my stunts in his phone. So he'll show the waiter. He'll show everybody. Look, my daughter doubles A, B, C. And then he'll say, you know, she used to be a gymnast. She was never very good. It's so interesting because from the outside world, my father is this incredible human. Everybody loves my father. He does all of this stuff for the poor. He does everything that he doesn't do for his family. He does for the outside world. Yep. So if you're my father's friend, 
they'll tell you he is the best guy on the planet. It's actually something we call communal narcissism, mm. which is a form of narcissism where the narcissistic person gets their sense of validation by actually doing these things for other people. So whereas, you know, narcissistic people in general just want people to show up and tell them they're great or they walk around proclaiming their greatness. These are folks who do things that look nice. So nobody picks it up that yes. way until you realize, actually, this is a terrible person who is unempathic and entitled and arrogant and all these things. They keep doing these things. But the payout on it is it is transactional. You need to praise the heck out of them. Mm -hmm. But a person who's getting what they want may praise them. Thinking, yes. Okay, whatever you've done for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. He's so great. But it's also that dynamic of your grandfather. Mm -hmm. He's such a great guy. He's such a great guy. Exactly. So you're in these environments where, in a way, these are all very transactional relationships. It's like people are buying like a really cheap and dirty version of someone mm -hmm. saying, oh, they're great because they helped me out. Yes. They're great because they were nice to me mm -hmm. once. And you're seeing that parallel process, which doesn't feel good. No. Mm -mm. Yeah. And with men, especially. With men. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you then, you go into adulthood. How did you get into the stunt world? There's no like stunt school or no. stunt application. No, so no. How did that happen? <laughs> A lot of people that I was performing with were doing it. And so funny enough, they said, well, send your resume to this guy. He's, you know, the biggest guy in New York. And like an agent. he called me a, a coordinator. coordinator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he called me a week later and I was on a movie doubling for Uma Thurman. And oh. that was my first film. And I never stopped working since. Wow. Yeah. What was your process of healing? You're successfully working 20 years mm -hmm. in this industry. How was your healing process unfolding in parallel to doing this work in stunts? I think part of it was, sadly, I was finally happy that my family was proud of me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that I was doing something that mattered mm -hmm. to them because mm -hmm. I never mattered to them. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there was a complex mix yes, of emotions. <laughs> there was a, a gratification in a way that I'm finally being seen. Yeah. And not because I'm dramatic, but because I'm succeeding. But there's a sadness at being seen because all that any of us ever want is just to be seen for us, mm -hmm. not because we're doing something that's sort of spectacular, yeah. but simply because we are. Yeah. And also that I was really good at it. Yeah. And so that felt really good mm -hmm. to just be mm -hmm. good at something mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. for people to mm -hmm. recognize that mm -hmm. and tell me. Mm -hmm that mm -hmm. I'm really good and big actors to put me in their contracts and want me there because mm -hmm. I was good mm -hmm. and getting this external validation from everybody but my family was something I think that I really needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It helps a lot. And then there's also a sense of agency of I can go out and do this thing. I'm good at this thing, feeling good at something because going through complex trauma and going through narcissistic abuse is all about invalidation of yourself, gaslighting yourself, being riddled with self-doubt. You really can't have self-doubt if you're a stunt person because you've got to do things kind of perfectly. Yes. There's a precision and you can't have self-doubt. No. And I've literally never made a mistake at work. Never. That's amazing. I mean, injuries that were not my, not right, because of me, because things of your, happen, yeah, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I have never mm -hmm. 
made a mistake. Mm -hmm. It doesn't surprise me because I think that over-control that trauma survivors often have, narcissistic abuse survivors often have, is just that you got to use that in the practice and art of what you did. A lot of people don't have that. So that could end up starting to look like OCD. That could look like other kinds of over-controlled behaviors. It could also flip to the other side and become things like binging and purging food. It could become addiction. Mm -hmm. It could become dysregulated sexuality. Like Mm -hmm. we could see it play out both ways. I think there was always something in me, which is why I named the book Glimmer. That was just, although all of these horrific things had happened to me, Mm -hmm. that I knew that I was here for a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't make sense of the pain if mm-hmm. there wasn't purpose for mm-hmm. the pain. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like my purpose was to help people mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. if I don't, then what was it all for? Right. To find the meaning and the purpose and the suffering is the way to come out the other side because yes. without that, the suffering will swallow you up and yes. it does swallow many people up. Yeah, You shouldn't be here. The severity of what you endured and the lack of support you had after it happened, you are a living monument to resilience and strength because so many people don't get the support they need through mental health or they don't give themselves permission to harness their gifts because I think they everyone has their yeah. gifts and they don't find the meaning and purpose and the trauma swallows them and they yes. go into the void. Yeah, completely. I read something where they say you're what your ancestors have been waiting for and that's what I feel with me. It's beautiful. And I think that My aunt really tried to break the cycle and she was shut down by the people that she trusted to tell and she wasn't able to fulfill her story. Mm -hmm. And I really, truly believe that that's what I'm here for. That's amazing. I've never heard that line. You are what your ancestors have been waiting for. It's really profound and it's a intergenerational cycles end when they end, right? And in some cases in your family, they may be continuing because some of your family members don't want to see it. And you have to be willing to let go mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what's pulling you back. Mm-hmm. Like a friend said to me, Kim, it's like you have one leg over the hill, but you're letting your family still tug on your other leg. You've mm-hmm. got to mm-hmm. let them mm-hmm. go right. so that you can get over the hill. Right, right. Which well, is exactly right. what I needed to do. That's exactly right. Because That's staying it. split doesn't, doesn't work. work. You know, the metaphor I've often used with clients is a hot air balloon, right? They, I mean, back in the days, you know, the cartoons, they cut the little sandbags out, but they let the weights out. But using the sandbag analogy, it is very often cutting out those toxic people and just snip, snip, snip. Mm-hmm. Balloon's not going to float. Otherwise, you're just sitting in this balloon that's just sitting on the mm-hmm. ground. There's no point. But to soar, you do need to cut that stuff off. Whatever it is, it's not always people. It's a whole lot of other things, too. But you have to be willing to do it. I think a lot of it, too, is unfortunately, there's a lot of therapists out there that shouldn't be therapists. Girl, you just said a mouthful. I'm just saying. "Mm -hmm." And I've seen a lot of them because (laughs) when I didn't have money to pay for a good therapist, that's a real big problem because Even with my mom, she has this thing in her back pocket where she's like, I've been in therapy for 20 years. So what? Mm -mm, If you're not seeing the right person, if you're not getting the right therapy, Mm -hmm. you're going to stay in the same place. You're never going to move forward. Mm -hmm. Things are Mm -hmm. never going to shift for you. Mm -hmm. And writing this book, I think it took from beginning to end about three years almost. I've grown more than I have in my entire life. And Mm -hmm. the catalyst of all of that was my daughter. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. How how old is she now? She's eight. And you want her to know yes. your story. How much does she know and how do you envision that unfolding with her? Well, she's thankfully an extremely confident, amazing mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me. soul. And unfortunately, I had to have a conversation with her earlier than I wanted mm-hmm. to because of her being left out of the family. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to address mm-hmm. that with her, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be as honest as I could with her, and I didn't want her to carry around this feeling of, even if I said, it's not you, mm-hmm. it wasn't mm-hmm. enough. And she even said to me, she said, Mommy, I want an example of what you're talking about, because if something happens at school, you want an example. So I right. want you to give me an example. And my husband was with me, thankfully, and he just said, you know how mommy and daddy's number one job is to protect you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to apologize. Don't you dare. No, no, no. And she said, yes. And he said, well, mommy wasn't protected when she was your age. And she was really hurt. And she says, well, who hurt you, mommy? And I said, Mina's dad, because that's what she calls my mom. Hmm. And she said, um, did he hurt your heart or did he hurt you with his hands? And I just said both. And she just hugged me. And she said she was sorry. And then she walked away and did a puzzle. <laughs> As children do. What a beautiful question she asked. Yeah. That's a question most adults wouldn't think with, with his, did he hurt your heart? Did he hurt you with his hands? Yeah. Wow. What an insightful. And I was like, check, girl. mommy's doing something right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Clearly, clearly. And each one of these things is building a brick in a wall of safety that she has in the world and she's securely attached to you. She's mm-hmm. securely attached to her father. Yes. And every day that secure attachment is practiced when you're being open with her and right. she is protected. She will never be the child who's not watched at the party and that will make her confident in herself in the world. Yes. Not foolhardy, but confident. Yes. And there's something that I'm living out now, which is The truth is so easy. Why don't we say it more? (laughs) And in that moment with her, and when she walked away, I said, this is exactly what I mean. It's so easy. She can take this. Of course, she's eight. I'm not going to sit there and tell her things she does not need to hear. But she needed to hear something, and she needed to be validated. And I also said to her, just because people are adults does not mean that they're making the right decisions and does not mean that they aren't carrying around pain Mm -hmm. and does not mean that their pain is not bleeding Mm -hmm. out into Mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's what's happening in mommy's family. Mm -hmm. Mommy's family's had a lot of pain and they're not dealing with the pain properly. And so it's coming out in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry that you were hurt by that Mm -hmm. because I don't want you to ever feel that that has anything to do with you. That idea of always letting children know that the pain of the adults around them is not their fault is so absolutely crucial that it also explains their behavior and them not coming around is not your fault. Yeah, That's all that any child ever needs to hear. But also what I love is because this is very different than the message you got as a child was that adults are fallible, Mm -hmm. adults are flawed. Adults aren't always right. Mm-hmm. You weren't told that. You were like, no. well, adults, right. Yeah. I, we're, everything we're doing is right. No, we're not harming you. We're, you're the one who's the problem. Mm-hmm. You're the one who's wrong. 
holding space for that idea that no, adults always don't do the right thing. We're a safe space. You can tell us it's okay. Mm -hmm. That's huge. My conversation will continue after this break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You're breaking through each of those things one at a time, but, you know, why don't we tell the truth? It's so easy. Listen, you told the truth to your sister, and she walked. Yeah. You told the truth to other family members, and they shamed and judged you. Mm -hmm. So maybe saying the words is easy. What comes back at you is not. To tell the truth is actually to blast through a lot of what you believed were social relationships in your life. And I think a lot of people, listen, when you become authentic, when you heal, when you push through this, your social circle gets a lot smaller oh, real yeah. fast. Yes. And I like that. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I Because it's a true, safe place. Yes. Otherwise, it's an illusion, right? It's like having a fully stocked kitchen and all the boxes are empty. So yeah. You're like, I'm still hungry because this actually isn't food. Yes. And I think when you step away from the family or the system that is the dysfunction, mm -hmm. I can see things so much clearer yes, now. Yes, yes, yes. Because when yes. you're in it and no. you're having mm -hmm. daily conversations mm -hmm. on the phone and you're doing these things, you're still, mm -hmm. you know, moving in that toxicity with yeah. them. So in order to really see it for what it is, you right. have to step away from it. Yes, and you can't see it clearly. There's no version of this, Kimberly, where you see it clearly and you stay in the system. So to stay in the system means you don't see it clearly, see it clearly, don't stay in the system. It's a dynamic system like that. And I think what people try to create is like, can't I have both? No, it doesn't work. They're right. just, they, they, it's two pullies. And so... And a lot of people, it's just too scary. We shame people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how many times I've read stuff when somebody's estranged from their family, well, what's wrong with you? How about maybe they're the most courageous person in the room that they were able to do that, yes. but that societal level shaming of people who set that distance boundary or cut out altogether, yes. I actually think it's remarkably courageous yeah. when people can do that. With my sisters, I realized not quick enough, but that their trauma was bleeding out into their parenting. Yeah. And I was not going to have that for my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. also was mm -hmm. not going to let her witness it mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. I don't want her to have one sliver of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, she will in the sense of this is who I am mm -hmm. and this is where I come from. But I want her to just be around strong, loving women who have all of the best mm -hmm. intentions and and can say, I'm not perfect mm -hmm. and I'm not human mm -hmm. and I know I need to work on this. And I do that with her. I lose my patience. I'm mm -hmm. not a perfect mom. Mommy's had stuff. Mommy's doing her best. Mm -hmm. Mommy's going to work harder. I'm going to try harder, mm -hmm. which gives her the gateway to tell me when mm -hmm. I've hurt her. Mm -hmm. You know, right. that right. hurt my feelings, mommy, when you said, that mm -hmm. in that way. Right, right. And it gives her permission to 
have that conversation with mm-hmm. me, which is so important because mm-hmm. I never had that conversation with my parents. Right. I'm going to do something that sometimes happens with our guests okay. because I'm a shrink and that's what okay. how I hear things is <laughs> you, when you were saying what you just said, you were saying the things you want to tell your daughter. One of the things you said is, I'm not human. Oh, right? I'm not human. That's I did say that. I'm doing a lot of inner child work. Mm, and that's great. That's great. And she's probably going to be really mad at me for saying that. <laughs> Why? Because I, f- I was very disconnected with her for a long time. Mm. I saw us as two people. Mm. I saw her as mm-hmm. the victim, as the person who didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you speak up? Why weren't you strong enough? I blamed mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. I put mm-hmm. the blame mm-hmm. on her. Let's say I'm not human again. And through my work that I've been doing on myself, I have reconnected with her and feel finally that we're living in the same body mm-hmm. because I didn't realize how much we actually weren't. Yeah. So I literally have a picture of her on my mirror and I talk to her. Mm-hmm. And I can see when I put a picture of myself as my daughter's age and a picture of my daughter next to each other, there is this pain behind my eyes that my daughter doesn't have. That has to be such a profound feeling. Grief for your inner child, the joy for your own child, and the wish for the child you were. Yeah. That she should have never had that pain behind her eyes. No. And I think when you come from a strong survivor space where you want to be the strong survivor... Mm -hmm. I often did this thing in my head where I would say, you're fine, always trying to power through it or not make her relevant enough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when truly she survived the worst of it. She did. She did. She did. She, she, she did. carried that burden. That integration becomes so important and that attunement. Yeah. So we can all be in one body. Yeah. Right, because it's the more we dissociate that stuff out, the more it can actually command us and control us yes. and pull us away. But you said it's okay to make mistakes. You want to teach your daughter it's okay to make mistakes. That pressure to not, because the idea is if I don't make any mistakes, if I'm perfect, then I don't have to be plagued by that self-blame and self-doubt. Yes, and I think there is so much shame around it mm-hmm. that I always felt I didn't have, which I've learned that I have a lot of. Yeah. I don't know what it is about that, the shame part that feels so vulnerable, I guess, because I think I felt like I shouldn't have shame because it wasn't my fault, but it just doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't work that way. Another thing I'd love to hear, first of all, talk a little bit about your husband, because one thing as I was reading your book, it's like, oh my goodness, how's Kimberly ever going to enter into healthy adult relationships? Your husband sounds amazing, by the way, absolutely amazing. And your relationship with him together, the two of you sound amazing. Was it always healthy? Like, did you just go through and meet healthy man? Oh, God, no. Like, lucky I'm alive. God, no, no. I was married before my husband. Oh, okay, okay. And I married my father in a very similar Mm -hmm. way. And it was very unhealthy. And he was a good person. He was a survivor as well. Mm. And so we kind of bonded on Mm -hmm. that. And I think the moment that he said to me, I think we should start trying to have kids. That was like my dead stop. Mm -hmm. And I divorced him. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. 
I would almost call that a psychological palate cleanser. Yeah. Let's just get that one out of the way yes. yeah. so you can go into healthier relationships. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes people get stuck in those. You know, the other thing I want to say about your husband, though, is one thing I love about the relationship the two of you have created is you have been through something. You've experienced that complex relational trauma, and he protects your vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. He never weaponizes them. That's an important part of that survivorship is that for many people who've been through any form of especially familial trauma mm -hmm. is that they feel protected, that that once someone learns that about them, that that's never thrown in their face, mm -hmm. that they're never called dramatic or any of these things, but rather this is the most fragile, vulnerable part of this person. Mm -hmm. In the role of loving them, the duties of the relationship, mm -hmm. in the role of loving them, I must protect this above all else. And so even in the worst fight that a person has the mindfulness to keep the reins back to say, We'll have our arguments, people who love each other argue, but that, absolutely not. I love this person. What I really love about that story, Kimberly, is that many people who go through severe intrafamilial sexual trauma feel that they'll never have a normal, healthy relationship. Absolutely, they can. You didn't land there no. the first time, but you got there. Were there other relationships where you saw some of these themes that you would relate to your trauma? Through my up. 20s. Throughout your 20s. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. one after another mm -hmm. after another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the really difficult thing when you've been abused is your idea of intimacy. Well, there is no intimacy mm -mm. because you don't know what right. that is. So you have to teach that to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's a real bitch. And I still feel like I struggle with that still to yeah. this day. Yeah. I don't think that's something that will ever go away. It's a process. Yeah. I think when you're introduced to sex at an age that is just unfathomable, mm -hmm. you can't comprehend what it's supposed mm -hmm. to be. And I went through that yeah. period of time for a long time. I know you had a journey with more than a few bad therapists, but as, was therapy a useful part of the experience of sort of getting into a, a healthier sense of your body sexually? Or did that come to you in other ways? My therapist that I got in my late 20s that I still have, she really was a life changer for me mm -hmm. and really helped me. She's the one who really was the catalyst for my divorce, mm -hmm. kind of really shed the light on me and sort of what I was going through and, mm -hmm. and what was healthy for me and not healthy for me. But there needs to be something done for people that don't have that. And I have, you know, someone in my family right now who just came forward to me who my grandfather abused and mm -hmm. she's in her 40s wow. and she is a mess mm -hmm. you know as far as she wants to heal and she yeah. wants to get better she doesn't necessarily have all of the means to do mm -hmm. so and so it's like, where do these people go that sort of fall through the cracks that mm -hmm. have been through something so traumatic and don't have the means to get really good therapy? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? And I, I remember seeing a, a trauma therapist, and this was actually quite recently. I went to see this person with my mother, Dr. Matei and Dr. Bruce Perry mm -hmm. and Dr. Richard Swartz are mm -hmm. all doctors who mm -hmm. I've been working with. And so I asked her if she knew of any of them. And she goes, no, I haven't heard no. the names. And I thought to myself, okay, well, you're not a trauma therapist then. Because mm -hmm. they're, Come on, they're yeah, this, this is, is what it. they do. This, this is what, is what they, they do. Them. I'm not a doctor. But I think that that's something that is becoming more available because of the internet. Like I was able to say to my cousin, 
go to YouTube and put in Dr. Gabor Mate mm-hmm. and just listen to his videos and how he feels about trauma mm-hmm. and how it resonates in your body. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching it live out in real time with yes. my mother, yes. her yes. siblings. You know, I get a phone call a few months ago. This aunt beat up this uncle. You know, they're siblings. And they're in their 70s. And my mom's like, can you believe it? Yes. I absolutely can believe it. (laughs) Absolutely can believe it. I don't see how any other way it would go if these people have never had the proper intervention as to how are we going to get this reached out. It's a big, big nut to crack, right? Yes. But what you're doing here is huge. Mm -hmm. You know, I follow you on Instagram Mm -hmm. and just listening to you explain things mm-hmm. when you live it, but you don't have the names for There's it. Names for it yeah. So it mm-hmm. feels like you're the only one who's right. living it. Right. Right. So right. it feels very mm-hmm. lonely, yes, confusing, all mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. So to have that mm-hmm. and to have mm-hmm. you spell it out mm-hmm. is so helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that is really such a useful tool. No, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes me back to something you said, because I think it's just an important thing for people to hear. That idea that family gatherings Mm. in families that have this, that there is these intergenerational cycles is actually where this often does happen. It could be a grandparent, it could be an aunt or uncle, it could be an older cousin, Somebody you're not usually seeing, and then they come into these family gatherings, and then there's a lot of chaos, mm-hmm. right? So it's funny. We say this around pool safety, right? If you are ever at a large gathering of people and there's a swimming pool and you've got a child, the only responsibility you have that day is to keep eyes on your child. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. And I think some people say, well, that's going to seem strange. So if that seems strange, you're protecting your child. And it doesn't mean you don't leave the house, but it does mean that once you bring a child into the world, you have a singular role in the world, mm-hmm. and that is to keep that child safe in every means that is within your power. Yes. And, and I think that's one thing I've very, very much learned from your story, that those kinds of awarenesses in large groups, I think is a really important thing you had pointed out. What has worked for you in terms of healing? Journaling, Journaling, writing, writing your feelings down, validating yourself, being with someone who validates you. I mean, my husband, it took him time with me. It's not like we got together and it was this perfect thing. When we first got together, I was still having a lot of flashbacks and body memories. And I had to sort of have that conversation with him. Okay, During this time, I might just need to be alone. So Mm -hmm, we got really mm -hmm. good at him saying, okay, do you need me here or do you need to be alone? Do you want me to walk Mm -hmm. out of the room? Like, what do you need right now? And from the moment he heard my story, he always was confused as to why I talked to my family. That was always his question. How Mm -hmm, can you talk to your parents? mm -hmm, How do you mm -hmm. talk to your parents? But he never not supported every decision that I made. And every step that I made to get where I am now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he never belittled me for talking to my mom mm-hmm. or my dad or my siblings. And he would come with me and support me. And And what I soon realized is that I needed him around when I was around my family, which made me realize that I yeah. wasn't safe around my family. Yeah, 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 because yeah. I needed mm-hmm. somebody mm-hmm. safe with me mm-hmm. to feel safe around mm-hmm. my family. Mm-hmm. And he let me figure that out on my own. Mm-hmm. And that was necessary because I wouldn't have been able to do it with him telling me to do it Mm -hmm. because I would have resented and felt like he told me to do this thing and I did this thing. I Mm -hmm. had to learn it Mm -hmm. on my own. 
I think you just have to be really forgiving of yourself. And it's such a cliche to say it's not your fault. Everyone always says that. It's so easy to say that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you don't feel like it's your fault. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And, you know, it's A, to never spend time with anyone who wants to you know, magnify that belief that, well, of course it was your fault or why didn't you leave or mm -hmm. whatever nonsense people come up with. But it, there is no magic eraser where people say, this wasn't your fault. Yes. And I think recognizing who isn't safe in your life yeah. on yeah. any mm -hmm. level, and mm -hmm. that doesn't mean, no. you know, sexual abuse. No. It just means that you leave their house yeah. and you don't mm -hmm. feel fulfilled or you That's don't it. feel those are the people that shouldn't be in your life. That's a huge one. And I think that when we say safety, I do think a lot of people do think of frank abuse. Like, well, th they didn't hit me or yeah. abuse. I said, no, 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 no. Exactly what you said. When you leave that encounter, and some people experience that is a depletion, as an exhaustion, as a, I don't feel like myself. It's almost like that you're not fully like snapped into mm -hmm. you. Pay attention to yes. that. You know, your book's remarkable. Everyone, you have to read this book. Thank it's you. <laughs> so good. And I'm not just saying it because Kimberly's here. Because if Kimberly said, I'm not coming on your show, she could have easily done. <laughs> I would have not done I that. I would have been so blessed to have read this book. I think it's a great book, not only for anyone who survived trauma, but who loves somebody who's been through trauma mm -hmm. and often is not sure, how can I reach to them? How can I be there for them? How can I be present with them. I think it's also a real gift if you fall in love with someone mm -hmm. who's experienced that or love a dear friend or family member. I appreciate you and just validating me and my story. You. And it you have no idea how much it means to me. So thank well, you. Well, I appreciate you so much. I'm honored by your willingness to bring your story to this platform so we could talk about it. You know, people talk about trauma and it sometimes doesn't always hit the tone, if you mm. will. And I think that this is very real. It's very raw. You don't make it sound like, oh, five easy steps. There are no five easy steps. Some days are hard. Some days are nightmares. Yes. Some days are good. Yeah. But it also doesn't mean that you don't find love. It doesn't mean you can't be a wonderful mother. Your daughter sounds amazing. It sounds like she's inherited a lot of instincts you never got to yes. express. And you've created safety. That's all the pay it forward yeah. one could ever hope for in this life. So yes. again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank so you so much. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Kimberly. First, the Crimes Against Children Research Center reports that one in five girls is a victim of child sexual abuse. And the Department of Justice reports that in 93% of cases, the perpetrator is known to the child. What happened to Kimberly is unforgivable and tragically all too common. The harms of child sexual abuse reverberate throughout a person's life. Kimberly shared some of this in her story. We see a permanent loss of trust and sense of safety in the world, impacts on her peer relationships, difficulties in school, physical harm, difficulties in adult relationships, and a wide range of psychiatric fallout, including complex post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, self-harm, eating disorders, and substance use. When a child is sexually abused, it changes the trajectory of their life. And when we consider that so many children are not believed, that re-traumatization magnifies all of this fallout. In my next takeaway, Kimberly was incredibly honest and shared that when her grandfather died when she was 11, her emotion was relief. 
and she recalled feeling dissociated during his funeral. It's a day when people were supposed to be sad, and her family, so good at playing at appearances, did just that. But I'm grateful to her for sharing her relief on that day. It is an emotion that many abuse survivors share and that can bring up internal conflict, even though it is completely normal to feel relieved when a perpetrator dies. For our next takeaway, family systems which shroud abusers and don't protect children allow self-interest and status quo to be valued over the safety of children. She cited Dr. Gabor Mate, who noted that her deeper trauma above and beyond the abuse was not being protected. In Kimberly's case, it was a complex web of multiple traumatized adult family members and other members of the community who benefited from their alliance with her grandfather. Silence was kept in place by fear and Dr. Fried's concept of betrayal blindness. To see it meant the system came crashing down. Another punishment that these kinds of systems use is ostracism, and they will close out anyone who dares speak out. Kimberly took back some of that power by going no contact, but it took her a long time to get there. For other systems out there, this operates in different ways, but the message is often clear, especially to children. If you speak out, the fallout could be worse than what you are enduring. In this next takeaway, while Kimberly's family system was more congruent with a psychopathic family system, a remorseless, brutalizing, and abusive patriarch in the form of her grandfather, these kinds of harmful systems often have a truth teller within the system. It was once her aunt, and in the next generation, it was Kimberly. And by speaking the truth of the family system, she was labeled a drama queen which is a form of gaslighting designed to silence and pathologize women and girls who see it clearly. In my next takeaway, going back to betrayal blindness again, Kimberly experienced intergenerational betrayal blindness. Her story of the communion dress is a clear example of that. Their lack of acknowledgement of what had happened and her family engaging in behaviors that revealed that unseeing of what had happened. However, in this case, when betrayal blindness is happening within multiple people, it is deeply invalidating and magnified Kimberly's pain and sense of distance from her family. For our next takeaway, there is a day when a survivor of intrafamilial abuse has to protect their own children. The catalyst for this can come in many ways. In Kimberly's case, it was the exclusion of her daughter from an activity with cousins. Many survivors who were not protected face a call to action when it is their own child. There is also a recognition of how different a trauma survivor's experience may be from their own child's. Kimberly captured this eloquently when she talked about the pain behind my eyes that my daughter does not have. These intergenerational cycles can be broken, but many generations often have to suffer to get there. For our next takeaway, even though Kimberly had been making the choices to distance and disengage from her family, there are the ongoing griefs that often never quite dissipate. As she started achieving her success professionally and writing her book, she just wanted her family's validation and pride. 
Family is often the first place many people want to share their successes. We are eternally that child holding up the good grade or picture we drew and wanting to be seen. Even when people have mentally quit their families, that emotional and primal pullback can remain, and working it through is the hard work of healing from trauma. As Kimberly put it, she says we must let go of what is pulling us back. And in our last takeaway, a recap of what Kimberly said worked for her is an overview of what works in healing from any form of trauma. A good therapist whom you trust and who gets it, journaling and writing, being with people who validate you and protect you, and self-forgiveness. No matter how severe the trauma, there can be a path forward, but it is often a circuitous and painful process to get there. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.